Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Typically, when I think about this story, and I've heard it many, many times, maybe a hundred, I don't know. I think, okay, the disciples are in a boat. Jesus is in a stern, wherever that stern is, probably in a sleeping berth down below. He's down there, so he can't hear the wind, and so they couldn't wake him up. But eventually they get up enough nerve to wake him, and he gets up, he calms the storm, and then he's angry with them for waking him up. That's kind of the way I've read the story. They're scared. They wake him up. He rebukes them, saying, where is your faith? Why are you so afraid? And because he's just woken up, I always think of it, what would I feel like just when I'm waking up, when I just woke up? So I'm like him, and I'm, I'm bothered that you woke me up. So I, I want to take the story apart. I looked at it uh, some days ago with some fresh eyes. So let's look at this as if we were starting a movie. We're actually uh, the opening scene of a movie. You see 13 guys all walking toward a boat. They're slapping each other on the back, big smiles on their faces. They're going for a boat ride. But you've seen the trailers. You've seen the, the previews of this movie, so you know they're all smiling and happy, but in your mind, you know something's up. All right, there, uh, you know, 13 happy guys walking toward their boat. Going to take a boat ride. The story has some intrigue because just like any good movie, these 12, 13 guys, 12 guys all called by one guy who came along, Jesus came along and said, what did he say to get each of these guys to come with him? 
come follow me. They have only one thing in common, these 12. Jesus has said to each of them, come follow me. Now, some of them do know each other. Which, which group probably knows each other? The fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we know. In fact, we know from the scriptures that they were actually in partnership with each other. They had a fishing business. So it's important to note, what boat are they using? Well, probably one of the fishing boats. The four fishermen, how do they feel that Jesus has asked them to take their boat across the lake? You're feeling pretty good about it. You're going to get to show everyone what? Your skills. These are their boats. They get to sail their boats and take the whole group and their new leader, their new rabbi, Jesus, with them. And they get to show their technical skills of sailing. This is the first recorded incident of all of them being on a boat. So while all of them, or the four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, probably have spent hours and hours, maybe in most of their life on a boat, have they ever been on a boat with 13 people? Probably not. So they're all walking toward the boat, and you've got these four who are fishermen, and you've got some disciples who are not fishermen. And I'm wondering how they were feeling. This is their first time on a boat with their new comrades, their new disciples, their new best friends. Did all of them get along real well? Do you think Matthew, the tax collector, and Peter were best pals by then? Probably not. Probably not. Judas, with his money bag, probably bought some snacks for the trip. His job to, you know, spend money, and we know he took a little bit of it for himself. Doubting Thomas. What what do you think Thomas was saying about getting on this boat? What, What kind of things would he, might he say to the owners of the boat? Yeah, do you know what you're doing? You guys know what you're doing. Can you, are you sure you can sail this thing? Can you get us there? Now, if you look at the map, of, I've drawn here the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, where they were, where Jesus' ministry headquarters, was up in the north. And where they're headed across the lake is called the Gadarenes. It's down here. So it's, it's, they could have walked around. Why do you think they chose not to walk around? Why did they chose not to walk around? I mean, it wasn't that. They could have done it, but anyone else like a shortcut besides me? Is there, is, what are the chances that the wind was actually blowing at their back? There's a reasonable chance, we don't know, that the wind was actually with them. And, and everyone was saying, oh yeah, we're going to put up the sail, and we're going to be there in no time. It's about a five-mile journey. It's about five miles across here. So if you're traveling, what, five miles an hour, which is not that fast, and in a boat, maybe faster, you're going to be there in less than an hour. 
versus having to walk all the way around, everyone likes a shortcut. So they get in the boat. How are they feeling about getting in this boat? Let's get some idea what a boat looked like. And because we hear that Jesus was asleep in the stern, it's a little bit confusing because in the stern, as I mentioned, I always thought the stern was some sort of an underground cabin with a kitchenette and a bathroom and a pool table. That, 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 that he had some nice area where he was sleeping and that's why he wasn't awakened with everyone else during the storm. Anyone know what the stern is? The stern comes from the word actually steering. What end of the boat do you use to steer it? It's a good guess because a lot of times the steering is in the front end of the boat. But the thing, what's the thing in the back? The rudder. There are some verses in James about the rudder. The rudder is like your tongue, a very small thing controls a very large boat. The rudder is in the back. The stern is in the back. A boat is steered from the back. So Jesus goes to sleep in the stern. Very important to know he's in the stern. Why would you choose the stern? If a boat is in choppy water, so the front of the boat has more what? Movement. The front of the boat has more movement. The back of the boat has less movement. It's going up and down. It's pounding the waves and actually making some noise, right? It's making some, so it's a lot less noise and it's more peaceful in the back of the boat. So he's laid out back there and probably, you know, maybe there was one other person back there, but he's taking up pretty much the back of the boat and he's on a cushion. So he's also cushioning himself. And I have this problem of, you know, well, why wouldn't he wake up in a storm? Well, if you're on a cushion and the back of the boat's not moving and the wind is blowing very hard and you've got your coat over your head or your cloak, as they call it, you put a cloak over your head, there's a reasonable chance that with the wind blowing, you wouldn't hear anything. So I thought he had to be down below to actually get out of the storm, but he has his cloak over him. He's in the back of the boat. The boat's not, back is not moving. And how about this? He's really, really tired. How tired do you have to be to sleep through a storm? He'd been ministering already, we know, that morning. There was a crowd. He said he was kind of getting away from the crowd. And knowing Jesus, there's something that often he did, and he would do it all night. He would pray. Possibility. And as I read the scriptures, I'm always looking for, I wonder why this guy could sleep through a storm. What if he was praying all night? Well, he's going to go across the lake. And he's going to meet something over here. Does anyone know what he's, what's going to happen when he ends up over there? He's going to meet a demoniac named, who has a legion of demons in him who runs through the tombs, breaks chains, cuts himself with stones, and is naked and screams. What are the chances he decided he's going to pray about that before he just hops in a boat and goes over there? 
if you're going to go on a mission trip like that, would it be a good idea if you prayed? And as our example, Jesus of Nazareth is teaching us something. I don't think he does any of these things just willy-nilly. He's, he's prayed up. He's checking with who? His father about what's going to happen tomorrow. What, what do I need to know? And he may not get every little detail, but he knows. Father said, I want you to go across the lake tomorrow. Do you think, knowing the, the fact that there was this crazy man who broke chains, ran around naked, screaming among the tombs, what are the chances that the people on the other side of the sea had heard of that? Kept a pretty good secret, nobody knew? He's just across the lake. I mean, this is the kind of thing that your mother would say, look, don't ever go over there. <laughs> These 12 disciples, do you think all of them were really excited? Oh, let's go see the crazy man. This is going to be great. There's a huge herd of pigs over there, which Jewish people don't typically associate it with, religious Jews. And there's a crazy man over there. This is probably a place that their parents had said, don't ever go over there. Stay away from that place. There's evil over there. It's like, think of the worst possible city you could think of. And your mother says, don't ever go there. It's just bad things are going to happen there. There's a reasonable chance that some of them were not that excited about the trip. But there's not only the destination that would give them a hesitation. We've already mentioned this is not a pleasure boat. What kind of boat is it? Fish. It's a fishing boat. Where do they put the fish after they catch them? Do you think there's any smell to this boat? What's the boat made of? It's made of wood. How easy is wood to clean? Not so easy. Lysol? They have Lysol Clorox back then? No? No Lysol? No Ajax? No Clorox? Do you think there's any remnants of fish scales in the... Oh, probably. How does Judas feel about that? And what kind of clothes are they wearing? They're preparing to go across the sea on a little day trip, a little excursion. So they've got their clothes on. What are they smelling? What are they thinking? Matthew, the tax collector, they probably tried to clean the boat out the best. They probably took the nets out of it. Unlikely they scrubbed it down. I'm just using my imagination now. I don't know exactly what happened, but think through this with me. What were the men thinking as they get in the boat? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? Jesus gives the order, let's go across to the other side. And then what does he do? He goes to sleep. And everyone else says, okay, boss says, go to the other side. Let's do it. Everyone's hoping the fishermen know how to sail this thing. And they go out and they get, what, probably up to about the middle, maybe almost to their destination. And what happens? Storm. And someone just mentioned they get what? Seasick. I wonder if in a group of 13, what are the chances that somebody, especially if Judas brought some, some food with him, some snacks, you eat a snack, all, 
And remember, this boat is, is bobbing around. And as the storm starts to whip up, what happens to the boat? Is it just going up and down? It's going side to side, up and down. You start kind of moving along. What does it smell like again? A little fishy in the boat. Ah, your stomach starts to turn over, and not, they're not feeling very good about this trip. I'd even say some of them might be upset. Who's supposed to know how to sail the boat? Who are they blaming? The fishermen. The fishermen are the first people they're blaming. And then who are the fishermen going to blame? They're going to blame Jesus. Wait a minute. It's not my fault. If you're the fisherman, you're feeling really magnanimous, really generous. Uh, yeah, hey, I'll drive. This is going to be great. I'm going to show you my so sailing skills. Yeah, yeah. you know, I used to be something before I joined this group. I used to be somebody before I came into this crowd. Well, about halfway through, nobody's praising Peter. Nobody's praising any of the fishermen. They're saying, hey, I thought you said you could sail this thing. Because if the wind starts blowing, what do you have to do to the sail? If it's blowing really hard, what do you do with the sail? You take it down. You have to take the sail down or what's going to happen? It's going to tear it apart or it's going to break. What's that thing that sticks up? The mast. So let's get a, let's get a little drawing of this boat. So we've got a boat, something like this, a little higher in the front than the back. There's a mast in the middle. And then you've got this, essentially a square sail. Uh, here, there might have been a platform in the back. Often there was a little platform because the boat is made of wood and has, it has these ribs all the way through it, so it's actually quite hard to walk in or sleep on. And sometimes there's a platform also up in the front. So Jesus is back here. Where are most of the people sitting? The fitting is sitting in the front. Now, let's do a little bit of math here. Uh, Twelve guys. And let's just say well, there's one in the back, but there's 12 guys up front. And each of them weigh 100 pounds. That's not much. How, how much weight do you have in the front? You got 1,200 pounds. Is that going to make a difference? You got 1,200 pounds in the front. Probably they weighed closer to what? 150. So you, you've got 15, 1,600 pounds of weight in this boat. What it's, what's going to be the difference in the, in the way that the boat handles? going to be a lot different. Here's the important question. What is the difference in how it rides in the water, how low it rides in the water? It's going to be a little lower, isn't it? How, why is that going to make a difference on this particular day? Oh, there's something that might actually easier come in the boat. The water can more easily get in the boat the lower this thing's riding. They're all sitting up in the front, or most of them are. So you've got 1,600, if, if they were weighing 150 pounds, you got almost a ton. You got almost 2,000 pounds in this boat. This was the first time recorded that they got this kind of weight in a boat, and there happens to be, just so happens to be, a storm. When the wind blows on the sail, what happens to the front of the boat? Does it go up or does it go down? It goes down. Why? It's just physics, right? The wind is pushing it forward. So it's actually pushing, pushing the boat 
down into the water. The people are sitting in the front. And now, what's happening to the waves? So the first wave that comes in, probably not a big deal. Nah, you know, it's going to be OK. It's going to. What we read from the text is that they said they were swamped. The water was filling the boat. Let's just imagine ourselves in the boat for a minute. Would that cause anyone a little bit of concern? There's water in the boat, but if there's water in the boat and the men are sitting in the boat, what are the men sitting in? Oh, how does that feel? Men sitting in water. How does it feel to have your feet in water is one thing. How does it feel to be sitting in water? Having your clothes all wet. Would that make you actually a little more anxious? Sure. It would. More concerned? More fearful? Well, there's something that we know that actually affects seasickness. And guess what it is? Fear. People who are fearful are much more commonly seasick than people who are not fearful. So it's also a good guess that some of these guys are actually getting sick. They're getting sick. They're getting angry. And where's Jesus? He's sleeping in the back. Well, there's some options now. They got water in the boat. What can they do? They can try to bail it. Do you you think that they brought a bucket? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to have to use our imaginations. I'm not sure how common buckets were in those days. I think they had clay jars and things. They might have brought one. I don't know. Bailing between those ribs is actually not very easy. Maybe they're using their hands. We're going to try to picture what is going on in this boat because they're actually sort of working themselves into a frenzy. By the time they talk to Jesus, they say, don't you care that we're perishing? We're actually dying here. We're, we're drowning. We're sinking. We are going to lose our lives, or we are losing our lives, we are perishing, and he says, don't you care? Oftentimes, when we use speech like that, well, don't you care? You're asking, don't you care? It's a form of a question, but you're actually saying, you don't care. We make statements like that because they sound less offensive, but actually they are accusations. What they're saying is, we are suffering, you are sleeping, you obviously don't care. Obviously you don't care. It's very clear to us that you don't care. It's interesting how clear things get when you're scared, when you're sick, when you're suffering, and when you're angry. Has Jesus ever told you to do something that has sent you into a storm? Often I'll ask that question a different way. 
would Jesus ever send you into a storm? And most people say, oh, no, he would never send us into a storm. But we have a very clear example from Scripture, and that's why I love the Scripture, to say just because Jesus told you to do it doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing. Just because he said we are going across the lake doesn't mean you're not going to have opposition. Doesn't mean that nothing is going to come against you. Doesn't mean you're actually going to look bad. Doesn't mean that you're not going to, like the fishermen here, actually be embarrassed that you can't sail your boat. And that all of your new friends that you wanted to impress are actually now saying, all right, big shot, look at the mess you got us in. Look at the mess you got us into. I thought you knew what you were doing. In his humanity, Jesus needed to sleep. In his humanity, he might or might not have known that there was a storm coming. The Father may not have, have revealed that to him. Because had he known, I'm not sure how soundly he was going to be able to sleep. I, I don't know, but because he had physical limitations, Jesus could only be in one place at a time in, during his earthly ministry. Much different now. But at that point, he was limited. He could only be at one place at a time, and he needed sleep. And he got hungry, and he got thirsty. So they wake him up. It says that he arose, and he spoke to the storm. He said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He gets up. He arose. It looks like he stood up. Somehow the storm that he was seeing and the storm that they were seeing, not the same. He was seeing something else. They were in a frenzy. It doesn't sound like he got himself in a frenzy. We know that fear is actually contagious. It's called emotional contagion. When one person has fear and they get around you, it's, it spreads like a virus. So all these guys are all worked up. They're trying to get Jesus worked up. Don't you care? And they're, they're putting this emotional energy on him. He gets up. You can't give something you don't have. He wouldn't be able to say, peace to this storm if he had no peace in the storm. They clearly had no peace. Let's think about those things. He rebukes them. There probably were some things they could have done before they woke him up. Did he want them to wait a little longer before they woke him up? Was he angry that they woke him up? He didn't get another half an hour if they would have waited another 15 minutes, would, that, would he have not rebuked them? Mm, another 15 minutes, would that have made a difference? How would the boat be sailing 15 minutes from now? A little bit lower. Would that have made a difference? No. They would have been more of a panic, right? So I don't think he was angry that they didn't let him sleep longer, that they woke him up too early. That's how I'd always taken it. They woke him up too early. You should have just left me alone for a bit more. What if it was the way they woke him up? What if it's the way we talk to God 
that actually makes a difference. You see, he calmed the storm for them. But there was something in the way they spoke to him and what it communicated about who he was and who they were and his care for them that actually got them a rebuke, got them him to say, where is your faith? Why are you so afraid? So let's deconstruct this a little bit. What are some things that the disciples could have done before they woke him up that might have changed Jesus' mood a little bit in the way he spoke to them? Maybe they could have prayed themselves. Thank you. So had they come to him and said, uh, Jesus, all 12 of us have been praying together to the Father to stop this storm. We are unable to stop it. And they talked to him gently and said, would you please help us now stop this storm? We have been praying fervently for the last half an hour that this storm would stop. And together we cannot get this thing to to move. Would you help us? What do you think his reaction would have been to that kind of a request? Those are my boys. Those are my boys. Yeah, yeah. Now you're, oh, I'm glad to help you. I'm not saying that these men weren't praying. They were probably individually saying, oh, God, help us. God, help us. Oh, what's happening? Just the way we pray when we get all worked up. And he still answers. He still blesses you with an answer to your prayer. He still will ultimately calm your storm. The storm will go away. But if the storm goes away for you or for me, before we have learned to calm ourselves and pray, have you grown any? You're the same man you were before the storm as after the storm. If he calms it before you learn to pray during fear, to pray during suffering, to try to calm yourself, to try to, to breathe, to try to ask yourself, wait a minute, Jesus, you told us to take this trip. So therefore, I've got some authority over that. I think Jesus stood up and he said, wait a minute, the Father told me to go over there. I've got authority over this storm. Peace, be still. He knew he had a word from his father to go across, and so he had no problem seeing the spiritual ramifications, the spiritual nature of this storm. It was a storm impeding him from doing the will of his father. Of course his father was going to help him. He, he knew he, this was not a death mission. It was not time for him to go. What if the disciples and what if you and I did the same thing? He gives you a word. He says, I want you to tell this person this message. I'm going to give you a personal example. I had some friends who came to visit and they treated my wife and I, a little disrespectfully. They didn't really honor us. They weren't really kind to us. And I realized they probably want to come back again this year. And so I was a little bit conflicted about that, and I really felt like the Lord was saying, 
Look, nobody tells them. Nobody is, cares enough about them to actually say, your behavior is hurting our relationship. Because a relationship, there's two things basically that, that com comprise most relationships or that are necessary for every relationship. One of them is trust and the other is respect. Without trust and respect, you have not got a relationship. You've got an acquaintance or you've got maybe something that someone you don't trust or respect. You're not going to get any closer to them. And on this visit, they broke our trust and they did not respect me or my wife or property. And so I felt like God was saying, well, they're never going to learn unless you tell them. So I waited and delayed, and finally I wrote out quite a long letter, a very careful letter saying, first of all, saying, look, this is how we repair relationships. To have a relationship, you have to be able to say, I was wrong. And so I will first apologize to you. It's possible that you were uncomfortable in my house, that the accommodations I gave you, uh, there were some things wrong with the room. They didn't sleep very well. I am so sorry about that. I will take responsibility for that. So the first thing you do, you humble yourself and you say, look, I'm, I'm going to own my part. And you show an example. This is how we repair a relationship. And so I sent the letter. How do you think the letter was received? If I'm telling you this story, when you do something that God tells you to do, it ends up in a storm. The storm got greater. They didn't receive the, the message that I left, that I sent them, in the spirit in which I sent it. They received it as an accusation. And certain types of people are used to controlling everything. No one has ever taught them. You can repair a relationship. You can repair this. With humility and determination, I believe, if two people want it, you can repair any relationship. It may take a while, and I told them that. I said, this may take years to repair, but I am in this with you. I will do whatever I have to do to repair this relationship. But to have a real relationship, you're going to need to do your part as well. I can't do your part. And that is you're going to have to recognize and acknowledge that there are things that you do that hurt people. And there are things that you have done that have hurt us. It's not a shaming. It's, not, it's just life. It's just how we do life together. There are just things that rub people the wrong way. Well, that made quite a big storm. Angry accusations, uh, accusing me of all kinds of things, of just being an evil man. But certain people cannot take any kind of accusation. Often we call those narcissistic people. It's, it, they cannot take any kind of a message that you need to change your behavior. It immediately comes back to you, you need to change your behavior. Well, I got into a bit of a storm. And so when I'm in the middle of the storm, if my first thought was, oh, I shouldn't have sent that letter. I should not have sent, why? Because it hurts when people are start accusing you, saying you're the bad one, you are the evil one. It's your fault. You do bad things. Those hurt. Those words hurt me. I have a sensitive heart. But I remembered something 
Who told me to write the letter? God told me to write the letter. Did I mean anything bad to happen from them? No. I actually wanted their best. I felt like the father was saying, they are going to go through life and they are going to miss valuable relationships, like the relationship with you and your wife. Because why? People don't want them to come over anymore. And nobody tells them why. I want you to be the kind of man who will speak for me. There were people in the Bible who would speak for God. What were they called? The prophets. How did people treat them? Ooh. I get to feel what it feels like to be a prophet, to give a word that you believe God has given you, and you give it with the best of intentions. And the people, what did they do to Jeremiah? They threw him in a pit. Most people wanted to keep acting the way they were acting. They did not want to hear anyone telling them to change anything, even though it was clearly the voice of God. I want to finish up with our time here, looking back at this passage and saying, how are you talking to God in a storm? It's easy to talk to him now if we're in a quiet place. But if you don't learn to talk to him and have a close relationship with him in the quiet places, it's actually much more difficult to talk to him in a storm. You're much more liable to do exactly what the disciples did and say, don't you care? Aren't you with me? You've abandoned me. And you don't care. When we think that God has abandoned us, we're accusing him of not caring about us. It's never been true. Has he ever abandoned you? Will he ever abandon you? Impossible. But does it often feel like he has abandoned you? Has anyone been through some times when he's felt like God has abandoned you? And you're suffering and you're angry and you're hurting and maybe you're sick. Maybe like some of these guys in the boat, you're throwing up. Let's spend a few moments now. If you've gone through a period where you feel like you've been accusatory toward God, there's a way to repair that. There's a way to say, hey, the last time I went through a storm, I got angry with you, and you came through for me. And when we repent, and when we apologize, and when we confess, it essentially takes us back and trains our brain that next time the storm comes, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to have to apologize to him again. I want to start declaring that you are going to come through for me in this one. You told me to do this. You sent me here. I know you're going to get me through this. Let's spend a few moments just in prayer, in silent prayer now. Anything you need to confess, anything you need to talk to him about. And some of you may actually be in a storm right now, and maybe you need to go back and gently wake him up. Hey, I'm in a storm now. I've done everything I can. Would you, would you help me out? Speak to him in gentle words. As we look into the personality of Jesus and what he's trying to teach his disciples, he's trying to teach us the same thing. We are his disciples. We are the men in that boat. 
And I am hoping that tonight we actually got to feel a little bit what it would have felt like in that boat. The wind's blowing, the waves are coming in, you're wet, you're uncomfortable. And Jesus appears to be unavailable, ignoring you. What does he want you to do? What does he want you to learn from this lesson? Why is this story in the scripture? Jesus calmed the storm. End of story. There's so much more to this story if you get yourself in the boat. What do you think? And we can ask the father questions like this. If they all got together and said, let's pray against this storm, do you think the Father would have answered them and calmed the storm? I think he probably would. I think he probably would. We don't know that. But I think, because of the way Jesus seems to talk later in the scriptures, he'll He'll say, where are we going to get food for all these people? And they'll say, 200 days wages couldn't buy food for all these people. And he'll say, you feed them. See what he's trying to get them to do? He's trying to get them to start thinking with their spiritual minds. You have unlimited resources. I told you to go across the lake. The father told me to go across the lake. You guys have power over this storm. One of the reasons he might have been upset was because they had power to calm the storm and they didn't use it. I don't know that. But I wonder, especially since there were 12 of them, there was a group of them, there is power in numbers. Unity. Pray for these things. Agree in prayer on these things. It will be done for you. If they would have agreed in prayer, about this, I think this would have been a totally different story. And I wonder if you agree in prayer about what you need, the storm you need calmed in your life, or even the political storms, or what's happening in your church. If you started coming together, instead of just focusing on, you know, I'm seasick, I can't wait to get out of this boat, hey, why don't we all pray? This is a very serious problem. They had a mission to get to the other side. What is your mission in your community? And if you have one, get people together and say, let's pray together and let's believe that God loves to answer the prayers of people who are going to pray together and notice when he answers. Thank you, Jesus, for calming that storm. We prayed about it and you answered it for us. Let's take a few moments now. Let's thank him for the prayers that he has answered for you. And then if there's any more business to do with God, let's do that now.